0: Awesome. Alright, what's up y'all? Um so now I'm gonna continue on with Lazarato. Probably finishing it up in this video here or this episode. And I'll be starting from chapter four, so about midway through the book, where he continues his what he calls his critique of governmentality. So at this point, um Lazzarato really shifts his focus onto this idea of subjectivity and how subjectivity comes about, at least for him, in accordance with the development of finance capital. So to sort of recap, what we have is like commodity capital or industrial capital or industrialization as being one form that capital can assume. And then financial capital is that what I will currently say is the form that follows it, but it's also intertwined with it where finance capital and industrial capital are always already part of the same system, but overtly one only manifests itself at a given time. So he's very interested in how finance capital fosters this idea of subjectivity. So some of the ways that we can begin to understand this sort of prelimin- preliminarily is by how um, people are given I guess, choice, or we can think of the paradox of choice, uh, and how that fosters an illusory form of subjectivity that is indicative of the culture industry or advanced, uh, you know, advanced industrial capitalism. Now, I'm going to be hard on Lazzarato here, because in order to level his critique, he takes aim at Foucault, and I am much more in line with what Foucault says than what Lazarato says. With that being said, there are other things that I'm going to take Lazarato to task for because he makes some rather odd claims, especially about Deleuze and Guattari um, and about the development of subjectivity more generally. Notably, and I'm just to preface it, uh, I find he's, he's reductive about the ways that what he calls axiomatics of capital or axi- axiomatics of financial capital, uh, how they come, come about. So it seems as though he wants to reduce everything, and this is indicative of Marxist thought generally, uh, reduce everything to uh, capital. So like how identity only comes about through capital, which disavows the ways in which the, these forms of identities or identity in general has manifested themselves pre-capital, or even how they will manifest themselves post-capital, if that's even possible. So he begins this chapter, chapter 4, by saying that in the birth of biopolitics, Foucault introduces a distinction between capital and capitalism, which must hold our attention, for he presents at once a critique of Marxism and a new definition of capitalism. So moreover, Lazzarato identifies that Foucault reproaches Marx and Marxists for identifying capitalism with the economic logic of capital and its accumulation. So what he's saying is that Foucault recognizes a sort of heterogeneity of capital and that it's all too simple to reduce it to as Lazarato quotes Foucault saying, uh, the economic logic of capital and its accumulation. So the other forms that it can take, although perhaps relying on this same accumulation, Uh, has a very different relationship, not only to the people within it, but to that very mode of, I guess, capitalist accumulation. So specifically, again, in Lazzarato quoting Foucault, he says that the economic process and institutional framework call on each other, support each other, modify and shape each other in ceaseless reciprocity. So there is a sort of Mobius strip uh, of designation or it constitutes or resembles something like a Mobius strip between capitalism and capital, or the accumulation of capital, where the two inform one another. And it's not simply as though, as we might have it in the classical Marxist understanding of the base and the superstructure, where one directly informs the other. And I don't think Lazzarato is saying that Foucault is totally wrong about this either. So he hasn't really begun his critique yet because, as Lazarato says quite specifically, we can therefore agree with Foucault that capitalism is not directly deducible from capital, as Marx described it. In spite of this, Lazzarato, and this is where the critique comes in, claims that there is a guiding thread through capitalism. Notably, it is the guiding thread of the contradictions and impasses that capital assumes or that capital sort of imposes, not so much Capital itself, or the accumulation of capital, but rather its contradictions. So, we he, I think he's taking really from he doesn't quote the Gundrysa here, but it seems very much like along those lines, and starting to be much more in tune with um, Deleuze and Guattari's thesis in anti oedipus notably that uh, the argument around schizophrenia and capitalism. So it's difficult, however, to understand how Lazarrato communicates or transposes this idea, this notion of the contradictions and impasses onto the history of capital and capitalism. Because then he goes on to say, just following this moment, that finance capital, notably the thing responsible for uh, the 2008 crisis, is part and parcel of that very system. So it would appear as though Lazzarato is a little bit more reticent to assume the same in the previous form the capital sort of assumed, in the industrial mode, and is now more prepared because of the, I guess, the hyper real speed in which we find ourselves, or in which this um, financial capital sort of um, surrounds us, because of that, and the varying flows, and I guess decoding that is going on, then we find ourselves in a kind of hyper-real example of these contradictions and impasses, giving his, at least I think he's assuming that we'll understand in him that he is providing us with the tools to just challenge this system, the current form of capitalism, as opposed to the old one per se. So what we see in this age, notably in the advent of finance capital, is a liberation of capital or in finance capitalism we see a liberation of capital so what Lazarato says about this is that freeing capital does not mean freeing its supposed self-regulatory power the market but rather its imminent movement of permanent disequilibrium its systematic search for asymmetries and inequalities the conditions of its valorization in other words of the appropriation and expropriation of social production that are its actual aims so we see a sort of explosion here, right? And th- and this does ha- share many affinities with Foucault's project and in like the history of sexuality, where there was an explosion of, of discourse around sexuality and how that doesn't necessarily constitute an emancipation. Lazarato is saying, I guess in part a, a very similar thing with regards to capital and the way that capital allows for expression, allows for a sort of freedom. But it is a freedom that is always already constrained by the limits of that very system so what we see and this is kind of the and it was it was ford's move in a sense but we're also thinking about the post-fordist era uh, indoctrinating people into that very system so it became a totalizing system in that way it was deterritorialized, at least that's how lazarato uses the term but what we saw were people being indoctrinated into this system in different ways so, we can think of the culture industry in this way via Adorno, who would, I don't, Lazzarato, oddly enough, doesn't quote Adorno directly in this book, at least I'm not aware. Um, but it is really speaking to the Adornian principle or the idea that, you know, we are all subsumed under this, um, this oppressive culture industry, where no matter what people do, what, whatever kind of political resistance they mount will always be fed back into that very system. So what might be perceived as some of the most radical or more radical approaches to um, overthrowing the system, if I can use such a vulgar term, taking you know, uh, trying to mobilize a sort of deterritorialization of oneself—that is, going to different places or, or whatever—would uh, not, I don't think, fall under the rubric of really effective political resistance for Lazarado because it would match the deterritorializing force of the system itself that that really just takes people or takes um, sees no limits and then can can therefore subsume anyone and everyone under the same kind of homogenizing structure but it is a structure that is very it's riddled with contradictions it's a structure that is not as Baudiard might say, really um, a move towards a general law of equivalence or a code, but rather, as Lazzarato says, to a decoding, a deregulation. So in this way, and Lazzarato makes it extremely clear, and again to reiterate what, what had gone on in the first episode here, talking about the transition from a finite and mobile mode of debt to an infinite mode of debt. So is thinking about that in terms of Nietzsche and the genealogy of morals, and how capitalism introduced a sort of infinite debt that can never really be repaid, hence it subsumes people in a perpetual mode of oppression. So for him, as he states here, capital thus capital thus has no external limit aside from its own valorization. Which means that, and this is something absolutely new capitalism is also the first society to introduce the infinite into the economy and production. And then he continues by saying that the infinite can never attain equilibrium. The infinite is what will always house a sort of indeterminate mode of possibilities or deterritorialized flows, and he takes that to be a negative thing, That will that is always already an oppressive mechanism because it Seasonal limits, and then you can have sweatshops and globalization and all that type of stuff. But this is one of the trickier things I have with this text, is because he presents the threat of author- a authorita- authoritarian, authoritarian god, governments, or reactionary type politics coming out of this as a sort of strategy to reclaim, um, I guess, a, a, an equilibrium. But it would seem as though that what he's describing in the corporatization of or the privatization of all elements of life would actually move towards a sort of equilibrium where there would be through that almost a total homogenization eventually to the point of there being no virtually no escape and very little mobility. So I have like I understand what he's saying when he's talking about equilibrium and I'm like I'm on board to some extent but we I think we should also consider the, um, the more subtle ways that it moves towards equilibrium, an oppressive form of equilibrium that crystallizes identity, that crystallizes people, that grounds them, solidifies them, and in doing so effectively um, closes off all possibility of mobility. But, you know, we'll keep going on here. So he makes then a, an interesting claim Regarding the um, the indifference of capital in these kind of in this financial uh, capitalism, where he says that finance financing flows establish and impose differences, asymmetries and equalities among material flows. He goes on. Functional relations are also and above all relations of power, for if money is indifferent to the content of production and labor, it is not indifferent to power relations. So this is an interesting concept because, for my own part, because it sees something of, um, you know, a give and take between the uh, the system of power relations, which seems to be at least in how he's framing it here, to have some elements of itself that is separate from capital, because then why would he even bother qualifying um, or stating this, saying that? W- one is not indifferent or one is in not indifferent to the other. So there is something of a separation here. And this is, I think you know he's being a little he's being consistent coming out of his uh, discussion of Schmidt and there being that sort of political foundation to the movement of the economic sphere and how these two things, you know, influence one another, but are, in a sense separate. But the fact that he makes clear that capital is not necessarily free from these power relations is certainly an interesting point, and it does begin to open up like you know the political side of his, his argument, where it's not a total um, loss of hope, right? but that there are clearly people that are affected and perhaps by evaluating the way in which people are affected via the market. And we can think of the wage gap, gap as just one example. Then we can understand what is going on in those other spheres that aren't necessarily uh, a result of capital, but that work with it in a sense. So it's almost like trying to understand by evaluating capital as he describes it here, it's almost like trying to understand the world by reading literature or reading these impossible scenarios in order to understand who we are, for example, as just one possibility to grasp some of the consequences. But again, and this is a point that he comes back to repeatedly, we would do well not to see this form of capitalism as being inherently separate from industrial capitalism or how it manifests itself earlier. Rather, this form of capital is, in a sense, well, what he comes to say to be the, the conclusion or the end point of industrial capital, where at one time, of course, capital was, or uh, profit was earned for the sake, just for the sake of earning profit. And we can get this from Marx, right? In the Grundrisse or capital, where whatever profits are taken, are, are earned, are put back into the machine and then so that those profits can grow, right? For for what point, who knows? But that is what occurs. Now for Lazzarato and how he identifies it with financial capital, there is a bit of a shift where this extra capital earned is, you know, placed in offshore banks, it's taken... Put in tax havens or, or, or whatever and it does nothing. It sits idle. So it is it is that extreme form of capital being used simply for the sake of it being capital that we see it manifest itself today. So again, I reiterate in that sense it's not so much that it is different from the old form but that it is certainly at, at the very least an extension of it, if not the conclusion. But where the difference really lies between these two forms, is in how he thinks about axiomatics so as he said or as he says all societies once solved the problem of decodification that money introduced by establishing extra economic codes whether religious social or political when money is the only code so we're thinking of it here in terms of money for the sake of money or its valorization when money is the only code compatible with capital how can flows be controlled? How can their conjunction and appropriation be regulated? So what he's proposing is that in the old framework with D, uh, when they were presented with the threat of things being decoded, they had these axiomatics that serve the, I guess, serve the role of played the role of limiting that possibility. Or, as he says, axiomatics allows us to answer the questions raised by the deterritorialization, abstraction, of social relations. So in this day and age, we retain the idea of axiomatics in some form or other, but even that, even that idea that was once reserved for the religious, the political, or the social, as he claimed happened in the pre-finance capital age, what we are seeing now are kind of strategies or illusions of these axiomatics. So as he says, on the one hand, or on the other hand, in order to be realized concretely, Axiomatics must necessarily produce and reproduce the same qualifications that money, the great equalizer, erases by establishing not only class, but also racial, gender, and social divisions and hierarchies. So, and this is where, you know, I really disagree, where these things apparently only come about as a result or through the will of capital, but we'll put that aside for now. But he goes on to call these axiomatics compensatory territorializations and this is when it manifests itself in the most extreme forms and we could think of the you know the reactionary um kind of ultra-conservative politics that are floating around all over the all over the world or coming up all over the world he suggests that this the rhetoric that suggests we return to the nation state is an attempt albeit uh an impossible attempt or or an attempt that will inevitably fail, an attempt to reclaim a sort of grounding, reclaim roots that this financial capital system has eradicated in favor of you know endless deterritorialization. So what he says is that the nation state here becomes the model of realization of the axiomatics of capital insofar as it assures the passional and living forms in which qualitative homogeneity and the quantitative completion of abstract capital are first realized. Oh, oops, sorry, that was a quote. That was out of um, Deleuze and Guattari. But the the point, you know, is retained. And then, in Lazzarato, Lazzarato's Lazarato's words, as he follows up, the flows of subjectivities freed from prior social codifications must be formatted by state institutions, schools armies, hospitals, healthcare, which assigned to individual subjects, a body, a gender, a race, a nationality, and a subjectivity that functions within the social division of labor. And this is where he sees some use to Foucault in describing the, um, I guess, the disciplinary effects of these institutions. And it is from this this explosion of uh, disciplinary mechanisms or the carceral state were to take one of Foucault's terms that we see that development of a sort of subjectivity at the same time of a a subjection like you are being subjected to your own subjectivity in a sense so i wonder and i'll just throw this question out there for anyone who is listening or who listens to this i would wonder what is necessarily worse like it's just a curious thought experiment where at one time under industrial capital where there was the clear you know division between uh, producer and um, laborer, or, or yeah, owner of the means of production and laborer, um, and the sort of oppressive things that came about as a result of that, and the one we find ourselves in today where this explosion of, um, I guess, possibility in a sense marks uh, an oppressive framework. I would wonder which is which is worse, and I'm not trying to lean one way or the other, uh, but it, I don't think the answer is necessarily obvious. And for that for that reason, um, Lacerato sort of assumes that if he describes all these mechanisms coming about today in relation to Deleuze, Guattari, uh, Foucault, then it'll just be obvious to us, the reader, that these things represent something fundamentally worse or at least something to really be weary of. But I don't think it's quite so simple and I'd be curious what anyone else has to say about it. So he turns his attention here to think about, um, I guess, the image of this sort of finance capital as a machine, where, where that's something for him that's a little bit is an odd suggestion, because for him, a machine is that thing that only kind of performs one function, right? Whereas this system is something that uh, adapts and changes and is, and is like tentacles gets into anywhere. Um, so in that way, for him, it's a very it's a social machine because it, it mimics that of the body in a sense, where, you know, we think, via Aristotle, um, you know, man is a social animal. So we're making a little bit of a leap here. But what he says is that the social machine of axiomatics is neither an automaton nor a cybernetic machine capable of self-regulation because it must follow the variations in the movements of capital and relations of power that never tend to equilibrium. So in that way, it's not autopoietic. So he's taking from cybernetic theory via Varela and... um, I think he just quotes Varela, but this is also, th- also thinking about maturana here, I think that's how you pronounce it, and the theory of autopoiesis. So what autopoiesis essentially suggests is that uh, you can have a system that is self-regulatory and that it is self, um, I guess, self-producing in a sense. Now that stands aside from allopoiesis that determines other things outside of, outside of itself and take a system, uh, not only relies on those other things, but contributes to their development as well, where you have a sort of, uh, like a social situation going on in that way. So we very much represent the latter, at least I think according to, um, Lazzarato. So the sort of, the, and this, we can, this is a pretty historical idea going back to Plato, where you have a social, Formation, whether it be in the form of any given state or anything like that, comes to mimic or resemble actual uh, kind of identity types. We see that happening here in a sense where people are placed under the same regulatory gaze as the system itself, which seems kind of counterintuitive, but I'm, and I am making a little bit of a leap. He doesn't make that totally explicit, but he says that, in, at least kind of against Foucault here, The distinction between disciplinary and security societies is quite useful as long as we remember that both are above all societies of capital and that governmentality changes depending on whether control over the economic cycle is exercised by industrial capital or finance capital. So in that way, the thing that remains consistent and the thing that mandates or regulates um, this, this system is that mode of capital, right? So he always brings it back to that where people nor the system itself are capable of emancipating themselves from it, which is really, you know, him leveling his critique against Foucault for not considering wholly the effects of capital on this development of subjectivity, which I in my, I don't agree with at all. I am much more on the side of Foucault here, but it's, it's still interesting. But he takes it further as to say that even Foucault's concept of biopower is only determined by the axiomatics of capital where biopower at least we might understand it via Foucault that it is the idea that you know um, make live and and let die in a sense or how there's the shift on managing life as opposed to death all of this at least for um, Lazzarotto can be reduced to its relation to capital where he qualifies that statement make live and let die with this if you can pay you can live, and if you cannot pay, you can die. I'm, I'm not so sure about that, and it's it's difficult to say because it depends on which uh, kind of system you find yourselves in yourself in. But throughout this book, he's talking about the um, kind of oppressive quality of the welfare state, rendering people, I guess, uh, incapable of taking care of themselves or being autonomous beings. So if we keep that in mind, it would seem as though if we take um, two examples like the United States and Canada to be really um, cliche about it, it would seem as though this doesn't necessarily apply to the same extent in both situations. Whereas in the United States, I'd be much more prepared to accept his thesis here that if you can pay, you can live and if you cannot pay, you can die. Like healthcare is ridiculous there. Whereas in Canada, it would seem as though there is much more of an emphasis on allowing people to live, which I'm not saying right off the bat is like a a good thing of course it's a good thing but that um, we have to question at least through Foucault how this maintenance of life can be an oppressive framework but it seems kind of reductive how he's how he's laying it out here but again this is something I'd be curious as to what other people might think about that but here we have it so from here we'll move into the fifth chapter titled critique of governmentality three who governs whom what and how and he, he begins with a with a quote by uh, Deleuze from Negotiations where Deleuze says that the key thing may be to create un, sorry, vacuoles of non-communication circuit breakers so we can elude control. An interesting kind of pragmatics and it lays the foundation for what he's going to do here. So thinking about who governs why and what and how, he says that in contemporary capitalism or that financial form of it, one governs social machines and in brackets, axiomatics, and subjectivities for these machines, in brackets, the realization of axiomatics. So there's that dual configuration going on here, where whoever's in control, or the one who governs, whatever that might look like, uh, not only determines those axiomatics, but the subjectivity or the realization of such uh, axiomatics, where they determine what is acceptable as far as the domain of kind of the new, right? Where what things are allowed to come into being is determined. And this comes down to subjectivity more generally, where he says that by producing us as individuated subjects, social subjection assigns us an identity, a gender, a profession, a nationality, and so on. Now this is, makes me want to pull up my hair when I read something like this, because this is what Foucault is responding to, not directly to Lazarato, but in the History of Sexuality, Volume 2 and 3. So in the first one, he's doing something similar to what Lazarato here is doing, but in relation to sexuality, whereas in the second and third volume, he's rethinking his idea that subjectivity sort of developed in like the 19th, 18th, or 17th centuries, and thinks about how there are examples of this sort of subjectivity emerge, or how they've emerged much earlier than that. So he looks at Plato and Aristotle, and especially Aristotle, where there is an emphasis on a sort of, on um, a sort of self austerity or a sort of self control, and how that can lead to virtue. So for Foucault, I think that if Foucault were to read this, and I'm bringing up Foucault a lot because that's what one of the central texts that or thinkers that Lazarato was referring to, if Foucault were to read this, he'd say, yeah, you could find examples of nearly identical things occurring in the pre-capitalist era all over the place so who's to say that that didn't represent some form of subjectivity and and this this does and it's an interesting claim and i'm i have trouble with this text for that very reason but here i'll keep going so the oppressive um i guess tendency of the system is to construct people in some way so they're they're emphasis placed on this idea of being constructed where capitalism constructs an enslavement in which humans act in the same way as mechanical parts, constituting human components and elements of machinism. Mechanism. Machines. So as I stated a little earlier, machines are those kind of homogenous, one-trick-pony type things, but I find this difficult to reconcile with the rest of his project because it would seem as though that that would be something that opposes the deterritorialized flows of becoming that that humans could take on that would simply mirror those same oppressive uh, tendencies of advanced capital, at least in the way that he sees them as being oppressive. So I'm not sure how this, how in his describing a sort of crystallization or solidification of humans is part of that same system. It seems like, like a leap, like almost a digression, but there we have it. I think he would do much better, actually, if you were to recognize uh, subjectivity in different forms, like in different different times, different ages, and really point out why this form of subjectivity is different, or why it represents something more oppressive, because he, he sort of avoids that, and he's just, he says, yeah, it corresponds to some kind of machinic enslavement, but I think that the same argument can be applied to different sort of um, forms of state apparatuses. Whereas, you know, even for Deleuze and Guattari, this this phenomenon goes much earlier, much further back than um, than Capital, where the state was something, through these apparatuses of control, that grabbed people, like with these tentacles, and brought them in and, and you know, uh, or apparatuses of capture. So I'd be curious, and it, he's not totally clear in how it differs, but mm, yeah. But what he does make clear, and this, you know, I totally agree with this: um, all problems with the state, at least in contemporarily, with in relation to financial capital or finance capital, reduces all problems to the individual, right? So, uh, if it's not the individual, then it's individual groups, right? So, you know, it's poor people or it's um, any any minority type figure that are the problem. But not only that people come to, because they've been disciplined in such a way, internalize those beliefs and then believe that of themselves. Because as we know, the and we must make clear that these disciplinary mo- um, efforts are don't necessarily manifest themselves in corporal ways, right? And that that is Foucault's thesis as well. You know, we move from punishing the body to punishing like the mind in a sense, or punishing uh, people in the brain. And when we see that effectively occurring people at the level of signification where people don't necessarily experience the discipline in a physical manner where they can easily locate the source of it but rather it comes to them in the form because it's in the form of signification that it has um, a deeper effect or a more pervasive effect so as he says about this um a signifying semiotics like money ...might put in place sign systems that have a signifying effect, but their specific function does not involve signification. And how I understand this, because it's tricky, uh, by saying that their specific function does not involve signification, in that it can have supposedly real effects on bodies, on people, on cultures, on civilizations, on, on what have you, that make them real, in a sense. But a signifying that term that he uses here is defined by Guattari as being um, modes like music or clothing or the body, behavior, things that don't necessarily exist in nature, but don't necessarily exist in signification as well. Because you can see it, you can kind of touch it, you can react to it. Uh, so they're they they're, they're a signifying in that they're um, or they're signs of recognition and to all kinds of machinic systems. Yeah, it's a complicated idea. I'd gonna I'm gonna put that on the back burner for now. Cause that's it's a tricky one. And I'm not too familiar with Guitari on his own, so that I'll I I'll play the humility card here. So subjects themselves, at least in relation to their bodies, undergo something of a an adoption where they are told they have bodies, they are told they are individuals because of X, Y, and Z, and for that reason they can then be better manipulated and better controlled because they've been also rendered another key term is individual. So this stands in opposition to individual where individual might literally mean uh, undividable. So you're a singular full entity, whereas individual means that you can be divided, right? So that individual body corresponds to this financial system because it has more of an affinity with the possibility of becoming, of deterritorialization, of moving beyond, of circumventing and all that. So what, what essentially occurs here is convincing people of their autonomy in specific ways by saying they have a specific body that's unique to themselves. Or in Deleuze and Guattari from A Thousand Plateaus, one of the signifying factors in that um, moment is the being designated with a face or what the face is. So for Lazzarato, coming out of Guattari's idea of the body as being something people aren't, you aren't born with a body, he says that one of the major initiatory phases of capitalist flows consists in the interiorization of the natural body, of the individuated body, already structured according to the dualisms of masculine and feminine, soul and body, individual and collective. Now this is an idea that like, I, I really agree with and I really, I really disagree with because I don't think that this is necessarily a product of capitalism. has its roots far back in the Enlightenment thinking and and rationalist discourse coming out of, you know, whatever school you can throw in there, but how there was that move in the Enlightenment, and even before, you can find examples of this, where there was an emphasis on finding, like, the true nature of the human body, what did it mean, what did it look like, let's cut open some bodies and figure out what's going on underneath, that all participated to this, and for me, this is... Uh, a symptom of the broader cultural logic of scientific rationality that saw the need to kind of absolve the world of mystery, of anything like that, in favor of um, an omnipresent, supposedly neutral, universal scientific gaze. So he uses this point in thinking about the development of like this discourse around the body or around uh, individuation or dividuation through individuation, kind of and that that our discussion is a little bit complicated and I deliberately uh, skipped it but he makes the interesting case that there is something that exists underneath all the kind of superficial manifestations of a supposed oppression so one of the ways that we think about this would be in terms of either in the way that he presents it technophiles and technophobes where you either have people that are like that take technology or to take these possibilities of cybernet or cybernetic possibilities as being either something to applaud something to try and attain or something to fear because of its possible apocalyptic uh the possible apocalyptic ramifications speaking of paul virilio died for anyone listening paul virilio is dead it's too bad um so yeah sorry i digress but of this phenomenon he says that intelligence technology and science have not failed us the creation of new possibilities and desires has. So this is the thing that undercuts all those other phenomena, like intelligence, technology, what what have you. And I think that he's he is really on point about this um, element here, because you can see that everywhere, right? People, uh, and that's why people love watching Black Mirror, right? They want to be able to localize these problems in very. Uh, specific ways in ways that doesn't actually implicate them, but it implicates the technology, it implicates the machines, it implicates, you know, a very singular and a very um, discernible and obvious zone, which is, you know, a strategy we employ to absolve ourselves of guilt or anything like that. But it's a very, and he goes on to say here that utopians and doomsayers, you know, the technophobes and technophiles. Neglect the fact that the man-machine relation is always bound to a social machine, to a capitalist axiomatics or a war machine. In other words, to a politics of possibility and and impossibility. And you get the war machine thing. He's a very selective reader, this guy, especially if he does in Guattari, but that case is interesting that these technologies, you know, are a thing that come out above or they come out as a result of uh, the social machine. So really, our gaze should be fixed on that as opposed to these kind of superficial modes of communication or, or technology. So from this point, we'll jump into the last chapter here before the conclusion, uh, where he, we're titled, Rereading Lenin. So how are we gonna get Lenin out of this? What, what is useful from Lenin? So he starts out by saying, or asking, can we separate the real economy from the virtual economy, industrial and commercial capital from finance capital. Is it possible to conceive of the economic cycle of capital as a passage from material accumulation to financial accumulation? And I think that this idea, because of my own interests and for anyone that's followed this channel a bit, uh, especially in relation to Baudrillard, this uh, split between the real and the virtual is a very interesting thing for me. And he has those moments when he's saying that, you know, money can be on the plane of the real or the, you know, the significatory, whereas for me, that's, uh, you know, money is always in the domain of signification, like money only exists through a kind of social agreement of that thing, whatever it is, capital or diamonds or whatever, having meaning. No, but meh, just thought I'd start with that. So as he recognizes in Lenin, at least as he says, Lenin sort of um, anticipated and foresaw finance capital as the endpoint of industrial capital or of capitalism itself. Or specifically, as he says, it completes the cycle of capital. So in quoting Lenin, who says that uh, the characteristic feature of imperialism is not industrial by finance capital, I think he's really chiming into something interesting here at least lenin is um, about how industrial capital kind of has an affinity with the land in which it finds itself so it is territorial in some way and how it is finance capital that sees uh, the deterritorialized possibility of capital being realized that we can see imperialism really take off so I think that he was, you know, and I wasn't really familiar with Lenin before this, but Lenin was—he had some good, good ideas. It's interesting, but where Lenin gets it wrong, at least according to Lazzarato, is that, uh, or at least one of the weak points is that Lenin believes that the stock market will vanish with the disappearance of free competition and the establishment of monopolies, whereas that's clearly not the case. And then he quotes Keynes and Hilfberger sorry, Hilferding, who I'm not so familiar with and I'm avoiding bringing up because that's a whole other discussion and it's really just supplementary, uh, supplement, supplementary evidence that would detract a bit from what I'm trying to get at here. But he then returned to this idea of the split between the reality of money and the concept of money. So as he says, in Marx's time, finance was still at its very first stage of development and his analyses could only be based on the concept rather than the reality, even if his New York Tribune articles from the 1850s show that he foresaw the power of finance. Well, Lazzarato's engaging in, a, in an activity that seems like everyone does at some point in justifying Marx or trying to um, justify Marx's um, inability to foresee this development by saying that, in fact, he did see it. But I'm really interested, and I'm going to keep bringing this up, what is the difference between the concept of money and the reality of money? because it would seem as though those two things really mold together where it becomes difficult to discern whatever real effects money has as not being predicated precisely on its um, on the idea of money itself or on the concept of it and even anything that comes about due to it does it have more of an effect? does it have more of an impact in the quote-unquote real world or in the concept of money itself and that can then work as a sort of social significatory capital to keep money going or the idea of it going. So and then like Marx, Lenin also failed to recognize um, kind of the development of the culture industry or the consumer society. So no less than the rest of the Marxist tradition, Lenin fails to foresee the integration of the working class and the population into the capitalist economy through increases in wages and incomes right so that how Ford was able to make the cars like um uh oh god they were uh, affordable to the workers Now rather jarringly I'll just move now into the last chapter the conclusion because it's it, the Lenin discussion is repetitive. He makes a lot of the same claims with different evidence and, and kind of goes around it. This is, at least in my experience, pretty indicative of books toward the end. Uh, a restating of many of the central theses and observations in different ways is, you know, the way to go about doing it. And the last chapter of the conclusion deals with the refusal of work or, or the case for laziness in a sense. So, or, so he's coming out of our, uh, Casimir Malvick's The Right to Be Lazy, in w- of which Lazarato says that laziness, the real truth of mankind, or in this book, he denounces socialism, which seeks to ensure that all of humanity follows a single laborious path that n- and that no inactive person remains. This is true of the actual program of today's ultra-liberal European commission. Malvick Writing during the first years of the Russian Revolution believes that labor leads to laziness, whereas if we start with labor, we always end up with labor, or worse, still employment. So it's not as though we should uh, see some kind of ultimate beneficial end to labor, where uh, one possible argument might go as follows. If we just allocate our resources in a proper way and allocate our working hours in a proper way, we can attain basic universal needs for everyone, like... That would be simply ridiculous, I think for Lazarato here, because as he says, we must not take labor, whatever it may be, as our starting point, but always the refusal of work. and that we do not need to accelerate, but to slow down. So it, you know, it demands that we reframe our relationship to this thing called labor and the absolute need that is imposed upon us or that it is ingrained into us, that we have of labor, that we have of capital or capitalism. And then he ends his book here by stating that the need to discover, produce, and reconstitute temporalities, heterogeneous subjectivities and their institutions, requires that we continually seek to elude the techniques of subjection and enslavement deployed by governmentality, or at least that governmentality made um, apparent by finance capital. So that'll... I guess it'll bring us to the end here a little bit. Uh, it's a it's a neat book. It it's hard, and I think it's needlessly difficult because he he's using all these terms that are you know come from other thinkers. He doesn't fully doesn't always define them, and he seems to use some conflate some with others, and it seems a little bit loose with some of his terms. And he's not always that consistent with like axiomatics or with his idea about deterritorialization, territorialization because at one point, you know, deterritorialization is something to fear, but then at another point, uh, what we are seeing is this kind of homogenization and reduction of people to single functions. So it's, it, it's difficult to kind of trace a single thread or, or a linear scheme through it, but it is interesting. I'm happy I got to read it. But yeah, if anyone knows more about this than I do, which I guarantee most of you do, Uh, definitely tell me where I went wrong or what things I I omitted that would have been important or would have clarified things. But yeah, for now, take care everyone. Hope all is well. Have a good